I made a uh, Ranger Beastmaster, which is like the worst possible thing I could have made. <laughs> I, oh, they're so. But it sounds uh, so cool. It every sounds time. so cool. And I think in free, I could be wrong. I'm. It's been forever since I've played 3.5, but I think I wanted to play a druid. I think they had animal companions in 3.5. And I said something about an animal companion and my friend, uh, Chris was like, oh, you mean a ranger beastmaster? And I was like, sure. So, sure, uh-huh. Welcome to Dungeons and Dinners, where the love of fantasy is food for thought. I'm your host, Brett Lindley, and today I'm talking with special guest Maria Oglesby at Oglesby Art about digital art, her involvement with Paramount, themed potluck spreads, and so much more. If you've ever been on the fence before, I've added a ton of new content over to my Patreon reward tiers. Discord integration is now live for all tiers, and at the $5 level and above, you'll get access to exclusive bonus mini-episodes with additional conversations with guests like Maria. Just head on over to patreon.com slash dungeonsanddinners and help keep this podcast ad-free. Let's get on to the show. Welcome! Take a seat anywhere. Be right with you. And as I said in the intro, we are joined today by the wonderful Maria Oglesby. Maria, thank you, and welcome to the Dungeons and Dinners table. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So you have quite a storied amount of uh, things that you're into in regards to uh, Dungeons and Dragons and in kind of tabletop gaming in general. Um, So for the uninitiated, do you want to give a, a little breakdown of what you're into? Sure. Um, I work as a freelance illustrator. I do custom PC art, um, both digital and watercolor pieces through my Etsy site. Um, and I take a number of other private commissions like fan art scenes and stuff like that. And then I also work as a professional DM at startplaying.games. Um, I do my own like PC art and map illustrations and world building and a ton of homebrew stuff. And I offer map illustrations as sort of an add on to some of my freelance work as well. Um, yeah. So I think I'd love to start with um, your your freelance artwork. By the way, is incredible. Uh, oh, so you. yeah, I, I absolutely love the the kind of the digital watercolor style is something that I'm I'm really big into, and you've got a, a number of pieces kind of in that vein. So I love those. Um, but on the professional DM side, how long have you been a professional DM for hire? Uh, actually, just a few months. So oh, okay. I've. I've been DMing a weekly homebrew game for about two years, maybe a little bit less. Um, And I run a bunch of one shots. And at the end of the pandemic, um, I was just kind of like trying to see like, oh, what part of my work is coming back? Because I worked as, you know, a teacher for a couple different private art academies. And I had a few other gig based jobs. And it looked like like the bulk of them were not coming back. Uh, Unfortunately, the pandemic took a lot of businesses and I was trying to think of what I'd be interested in doing as a part-time job. And I'm really interested in like um, keeping all aspects of my life really creative. So uh, as opposed to looking for, you know, something that that was a little less than fun, uh, I was trying to look into hobbies and see if there was any way to monetize that. And uh, a friend of mine had heard of StartPlaying.Games and it opened, I, I believe, this past year because of the pandemic. Uh, a lot of more people were getting into D&D and... Uh, a lot of people were looking for DMs who were online as opposed to in person, which is, I think, what the standard was before COVID. But I think now it's really shifting over. Um, yeah. 
And when I logged on, the site has actually gone over a bunch of changes. They're really good at updating it, and it just continues to grow and evolve. And it's just really been exciting seeing what a big community there is out there and what a big demand there is for DMing, because I think until I, I kind of stumbled onto it, I hadn't realized that was an option. And it's been so fun so far. I have um, I have a couple long-term campaigns I'm working on, um, and I'm discussing with a few different people on like setting up an ongoing weekly campaign, which I'm very excited about. Um, but I have an eight shot available that I will be advertising soon. It's just finishing up beta testing. And then I have several one shots that I run. That's really cool. So yeah, I, I don't know a lot about the structure of a paid for DM um, outside of kind of like, yeah, you just pay and have a DM until you hate them, like kind of like any other <laughs> DM. Um, oh but... gosh, well, that hasn't happened to me yet. Hopefully that won't happen. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. <laughs> I mean, we have a little self-conscious in that area. <laughs> Um, it is really vulnerable, I think, putting yourself in that space because you want to push your players um, to undergo character growth and you want to put them through some stuff, but you really don't want it to get to the point where it's no longer fun. You know, like it, right. you have to stretch someone to be heroes. And when you don't know them super well, it's hard to know where you can stretch and where they're going to snap. And I think kind of like finessing that and being like having a lot of open communication with your players and making sure that you're very upfront with what you're doing beforehand is so key, especially when you're DMing for strangers. Um, but yeah, I agree. I, it's really yeah. vulnerable. No, I mean, I a hundred percent agree on the being open in communication. I think one of the things that I have learned the most in playing D and D or any TTRPG, any kind of co-op game is how much you just it, it it if you if you're not a good communicator it will teach you and even if you think you're a good communicator it will stretch your boundaries and help you really understand more about yourself and and how to work with others yeah, I think it's a wonderful cooperative game. And I think people, it's its kind of getting out of the stigma of like, oh, it's a dork game. And it's really being sort of pushed into the mainstream now and people are realizing how helpful it is and how many uses it has. Right. No, I agree. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of places to thank for that. I think in just in general, it's been going through a, a growth spurt. I think, of course, it's been helped a lot by things like uh, Twitch streaming and YouTube streaming and stuff where that's a lot more accessible. Of course, there's, you know, things like Critical Role that have pushed pretty hard to, to get that a little bit more mainstream. But I think just accessibility of it has really helped people understand what it is a lot more. Yeah, I completely agree. I think sites like Roll20 and D&D um, Beyond have made it so much more accessible. And I'm I'm really excited for when Critical Role's Amazon show premieres, because I, I think that's going to be very clearly D&D. And I'm wondering if there's going to be like a new influx of people who are like big fantasy show watchers who are going to get into the game. And I'm excited to see like what kind of changes about that, because I feel like depending on how you get into D&D, like it attracts different kinds of personalities. And it's always so fun to see like just sort of like where you're pulling people from, like how that affects the way the game is played. I agree. I Because there's been a lot of, almost all of the main branded content for D&D outside of rule books has kind of been lackluster. There's been a couple of games that like the Baldur's Gate series or, or you know, uh, what is it? The Winter... Uh, I'm, it's escaping me now. There's going to be fans that get mad. Um, but there's been a couple of games that have been kind of okay. But almost everything that's a show or movie for D&D has been there. There's two D&D is too broad of a thing to try to say, like the Dungeons and Dragons movie. 
Like nobody wants to see that because hardcore fans want to know like what realm is it in? Who are your main characters? Is this a Drizzt campaign? Like what are we getting into here? And people that aren't initiated, it, there's too much content for them to feel there's like, I don't know what this is because it doesn't say anything. Right. And so hopefully I think Critical Role is going to come in. They've been very adamant about this is a show for adults. So there's going to be language. There's going to be some blood. There's going to be intense action. Like this is going to be an adult show. And I think that's some of like, yes, D&D should be open for kids and you can run campaigns for kids very easily. But I think that proving and really solidifying that this is not a dorky kids game it can be a game for anyone is something that I think will really, like you said, help kind of finally crack that open and make it hopefully just part of culture now. I hope so. I think with the movie, it's, it's going to be very difficult for them. And I'm very excited to see how they approach it because D and D is so diverse that if you kind of brand it as D and D, it's going to be very difficult to explain what it is. I think you really have to take a very niche part of it and a very decided flavor based on, you know, like your DM, which I guess would be the writers um, and just sort of run with that and, and let people realize how varied it can be. Um, I think trying to pack everything else in it, just like if you were running that as a game, like it, it wouldn't make that much sense. Um, I really hope they, they bring some humor to it because I know it's, it's such a fun game and there's like, it, it doesn't take itself too seriously, even though the things that are happening are very serious. And I'm, I'm really hopeful that they'll, they'll do something to just sort of like bring the fun of the game into it as opposed to treating it like a very gritty action movie. But I, I know almost nothing about it. So we'll see. Yeah. It same. I'm like trying, doing a lot. I'm making like almost ensuring that I don't know anything about it. <laughs> there are some movies that I'm like, I won't watch trailers because I I refuse to get hyped about this. If I if I walk in cold, there's a lot better chance that I'll go like, eh, that was okay, than if I walk in hyped. So yeah, it's like I don't want to know anything about it. Hopefully, like like what good game doesn't have a, a couple of punny store names or like you said, like okay. yeah, there's gonna be a Gnome Depot or something in there where like a little like bit of that kind of Pixar humor. I think I saw something on um on Twitter that would be like amazing it where they were saying that uh they really hope that a character dies during the movie and then in the next scene uh, another character played by the same actor yes. like just happens to come <laughs> yeah. in that would be the best. I, um, like those kinds of head nods would really and people would know like it, it would be it's there people would pick up on that and I think that would be really and people who don't It'd probably be a little bit like uh, for a second, but the mind deletes that stuff real fast. So. <laughs> yeah, I um, I don't know what the movie's about, but I actually do have like a fun story about the movie. If, yeah. I don't know if, if I should yeah, do no, story go for time it. or if this should yeah, be. Yeah, I want to do a story. Yeah, okay, go for so because <laughs> I was very excited about this. So I got, um, so Paramount is producing the movie and apparently the Paramount executives weren't really sure what Dungeons and Dragons was. And so they're doing a lot of their advertising through Twitch because a lot of Twitch streams are how D&D is advertised. Um, so they asked Twitch, like, can you run a one shot for all these Paramount executives so that they know what they're advertising? And uh, a friend of mine at Twitch um, put me in touch with them and they hired me to do character art for this one shot for Paramount executives. 
Um, Holy crap. It was really fun to do. Uh, and they, they didn't really know what they wanted. So they gave me a lot of freedom with it. Um, one was supposed to be male, one was supposed to be female, one was supposed to be like have a mask so you couldn't tell because they weren't sure who was going to, which executives were going to be playing in the one shot. Uh, but it was really fun. Everyone had like Paramount branded armor and stuff. And um, yeah, I guess apparently the one shot went very well. So that's that's I, incredible. Like, so, so how do you get pulled into that? Is that just like kind of like luck of the draw and networking on Twitch or? Uh, one of, in my home game, one of the players that I DM for, who I've done multiple character pieces for my own home game, um, he really likes my stuff and he works at Twitch. So someone he knew was like organizing that and he was able to recommend me. That's so incredible. Congratulations. That's such a fun, like, that's just a fun thing to like a pin to have. Like... Yeah, it was very fun. Um, I, I love, I love how like randomly you'll get jobs and it's, it's such a fun community and, and kind of like inclusive in the way they're always, you know, like there's, there's a big demand for art because it really runs the imagination. Um, and yes. it's so fun. All of the different D and D projects that you kind of get to have a glimpse in when you get commissioned to do something like that. Yeah. I love, I've talked with a, a number of people now and I just love how many different types of artistic outlet are in the, it's really all of them. Like there are people who do sculpture, there's amazing acrylic dice work, there's paint, there's like, you know, digital art, there's physical art in maps and tokens and, and you've got furniture building for like gaming tables and custom DM screens. You've got cosplayers, like the spectrum of artistic outlets, you know, writers and that are just available all within this one kind of genre is, is like it encompasses all of the arts there's people that make music and background noises and battle noises and like i just i'm always shocked and stunned at how creative and welcoming all of these different artistic styles are and all these mediums are and the amount of like kind of crossbreeding that starts happening between them and and you get some really interesting pairings of people that start working together on projects that then make something even more creative from that yeah i agree i think it comes from like being so into a game that that's so like immersive and long form and it encourages artists because it runs off of imagination um and i think even if you go into D, not being super used to stretching your imagination it encourages that so much that it's very easy to branch off on different points from there I 100% agree. So I want to jump back and because you said something briefly that keys into how something works, but I had never thought of it that way. So you said you are beta testing an eight shot. Um, so yes. for for one, uh, I guess the first question is how much time, because I think in more casual games of D&D, a one shot is generally kind of one session, but it could be three sessions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so do you have like a time limit that you're trying to hit when you say something is a one shot or a two shot? And then kind of maybe some of what goes into creating and then even testing something that sounds a little bit more complex, like an eight shot. Yeah, sure. Um, so I do think for one shots, uh, beta testing them is a little different because uh, 
when I run them, at least before I run them and charge people, I want to run them through multiple times. And first of all, make sure like the puzzles aren't too hard or aren't too easy. Um, Cause I really like putting riddles and uh, logic puzzles or just uh, throw things at people and wait to see how they solve them. And I'm really a fan of outside of the box thinking. So if I can run a one shot two or three times and each time the players think of a slightly different way around it um, and there isn't one obvious way, then I think my job is done there. And also just to test timing because you'll get people who are really into role play and pe or people who really want to charge ahead. But as long as I can get it down to where I know within like an hour or two, how long something is going to take, um, then I can advertise it because you have to put the time difference on um, start playing dot games so that they know how long they're signing up for. And with some campaigns, you know, there's, there are ongoing campaigns, which are my favorite, because it lets me move the plot based on what the players do. And you can do that to some extent in shorter games, but the ones that don't have a set time limit, if the players decide to, for example, like um, ignore the mission and go like raid a drug lord, like the plot can completely change because they've just made a powerful enemy and gotten some really powerful magical items like going through right. this person's house. And that changes the long-term plot. And I think as a DM, what you can do is you can control the main villains and how they're going to respond to things. And you can control their long-term plan and how it's sabotaged. But you can't control the player's actions because that that level of autonomy is what makes the game so fun. And having a DM that will kind of roll with that and reward them for it. Um, so eight shots, I think, are a nice kind of in-between because one shots are so structured and so kind of down to the wire that if a player decides to do something different, you don't really have time for it. So right. I think with longer, like six to eight shots, um, they're, they're about three-hour sessions is what I, I prefer to DM. But if you have someone who really is into role play, you know, it's okay if it goes a little longer. Um, and I've just been beta testing it by running one session a week as if it were a campaign. Um, but I have what I need to happen in each session. And I have three or four ways that can occur. And depending on how they run into it, I'll present the information in a different way. And they, that can kind of give flavor to things. Um, for example, in the beta chat, the beta test that I'm running, um, one of the players uh, is a tarot reader. She chose playing cards as a proficiency and then just decided to go with tarot cards instead. And so I'm, she, they have like a God and goddess that they worship. And I have them, uh, flipping the same tarot cards over and over and slowly narrowing down the meanings and giving her reoccurring dreams in order to give the campaign a, a bit of a hint. Um, if they're not kind of figuring out who the villain is, it's a whodunit right. mystery. Okay. Um, it's, and so there's, there's some elements to that. And, you know, there's one character who told me, you know, like I'm impersonating somebody and that's why I don't want to go back to this place. And so, you know, I have one character who's, it, you know, ha is a little suspicious and, you know, like I can, they're giving him looks and he thinks they know who they are. And so you can add some flavor to it. And then there's three sessions in the middle where they can just role play and make alliances. Um, it's a heavily political campaign. Um, and based on that, I have a sheet with each of the significant, there are five or six significant NPCs. And based on how much time they put into them, they don't know this yet. In the penultimate episode, um, they'll have to rely on whoever they've made an alliance with to help them, and that'll flavor the method of their escape. So there's some wiggle room, and I try as hard as possible to integrate the players' choices and like what they're interested in, what their backstories are to flavor it. But at the end of the day, there is a set number of things that have to happen. So you know, they're going. This is going to be a shopping episode, and they're going to be given this much gold, and they can buy whatever items they want and use them in different interesting ways. But 
there's a set number of things and, you know, a set amount of gold and a set amount of haggling, et cetera. Um, or they're going to run into this encounter, but they can flee from it. Or if they've figured out what's going to trigger the encounter, they can avoid it altogether. Um, I don't like forcing encounters on players. So I'm, I'm fine with cutting a session a little shorter, adding some extra role play if they are smart and think their way around it. Um, and I still give experience for that because um, everyone's leveled up on a set. It, it's milestone based. So Right, right. If it's, you avoid the encounter, that counts as defeating it. So <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, and because, you know, you want to reward players for being smart and outthinking the monster, basically. Right. So, yeah, I, I think overall it's it's a fun in between. I think a lot of people aren't looking for a really heavy ongoing campaign when they're signing up for a paid DM thing because they don't know if they have that availability or they want to commit to a set number of weeks or they want to try a DM style with something a little bit longer before they commit to inquiring about a longer term campaign. No, I think that's a great option. And I think it is, I didn't really think about bridging the gap between kind of the infinite or at least like year long campaign versus the the one shot um, and what would exist in between those, it, which is funny because I've seen stuff that are like short campaigns um, between like 10 or 20 sessions or something like that. Um, yeah, I think Dimension 20 mostly does like shorter campaigns mm -hmm. and um, yeah. Exandria Unlimited seems to be doing a shorter one right now. Yep. Deadwood was kind of in that vein as well as a fairly short mm -hmm. campaign. Um, so, yeah, I think that's I think that is a really good option. I think it's something that more people could use to be a little exposed to. And I also think that like being a paid DM is not a new thing, but I think it had a lot more like connotations against it for a long while because things were still kind of niche in the community um mm -hmm. at least around where i was um again you know you're right pre-pandemic uh pandemic changed all of that definitely but i think even even still pre-pandemic like a few years prior to that it was a little bit more taboo but it, it slowly kind of became more mainstream and I think that it is a really good option because I think there is a level of, at least where I'm around, there's not necessarily as good of a variety of uh, DMs and players to kind of jump in with. And I think that getting, even going online and like finding, looking for group places like on Reddit or whatever, there's a lot of, you know, kind of interviewing. It's almost like online dating where you got it is because you're going to be really emotionally vulnerable with these people and you're going to be relying on them for like basically like a year plus long team building exercise so it's mm -hmm. it's a really big commitment finding the right group that you mesh with and there are so many different flavors of campaigns you know there are people who are very into role play you know there are the murder hobo campaigns there's someone who kind of wants an in-between mix or someone who just wants puzzles or modules and i think all those are perfectly valid, but it can be really tricky if you're in a smaller area to find a group of like four to seven people that want the same thing. Yep. And I think that adding that, like, I don't think that I'm trying to figure out the, the, the way that I kind of want to say this, but like a adding a little bit of structure to it in the form of if I'm paying for this content, then like that transactional element I feel is not a negative thing. I think it's really positive because it also helps ensure that this is a serious situation. I am willing to put money in because I want to be there every week. I want to be a player. I want to have this particular experience. 
And it also puts a little bit of onus on the other side that this person is going to be serious about providing me, you know, maps for combat encounters or room to role play or flexibility in building a character. And they're going to have the experience, um, you know, not a lot of a lot of inexperienced people who are going to try to charge for their work will either find themselves out of work very quickly or something, you know, along those lines. So there's a little bit of more trust that can be placed into that situation. Right. And what I really like about start playing games is that there's a, a review function, kind of like Yelp. So, you know, like if you play one shot and you like your DM, you can drop a review. And I think that boosts them on the DM search. So you can actually find a DM by searching for the kind of DM that you want or by searching for a campaign or module or one shot that you want to play. That's super cool. So I've, I've, it's kind of interesting because, uh, just a, an episode or so ago, um, I had a DM that's been a DM since the seventies and they are really adamant and kind of proud of the fact that they've never run the same adventure hook more than once. So they've only done all the adventures start in a tavern once and mm-hmm. like they just really like stretching that those creative muscles and and running for more than 30 years of content is a lot of different ways to run a game and i think it's really interesting because you're coming from at least if i'm kind of understanding correctly a really refined version of the other side of that coin which is running the same content but refined in such a manner that it can be different for every group of players that play it um, and has enough options to be played around in a way that everybody's going to have a unique experience. And yet you are probably more intimately familiar with your one shots than I even am with any of the one shots that I- I've run most of my one shots once. <laughs> yeah, um, I-, I think it is really different, but it's also even though the structure is the same, I think a lot of the rules and the particulars of what happens in the story can be bent and prodded based on your character's interactions with each other and with the NPCs. So as long as you know that there's, you know, a couple set anchor points and you'll be able to guide players to them, I think really rigidly pushing them along a set course is a good way to make players feel trapped. So I think as long as people go into the one shot, which I think most people do knowing that, you know, it has to end in three hours. And if I go off on this tangent, it's not going to work. Um, it's it's still pretty flexible. I've never actually run the same one shot exactly the same way twice, even though they had all of these set points because my players were all so different. So, you know, maybe they had the same encounters, but they all approached them a little bit differently. And some encounters were really rough on players. Some were really easy. Some, you know, like they happened to choose a spell that let them like completely bypass it. Or, you know, like they, they really uh, had a rough time and were kind of struggling. So... And not just with encounters, with puzzles and kind of the way they interact. Um, And I'm always so interested to see like the different, my favorite is just throwing just sort of like open-ended problems at players because they all think of such unique, different ways to approach them. Um, And it's just so fun to watch. So do you find yourself refining uh, your one-shots the more they get played? Like, is there, do you, have you ever run across a point where, you oh, thought absolutely. you had everything kind of tidied up and like more than one set of players found some way around something that you really thought would be some interesting content or. Oh yeah. I, 
I don't think I ever have things tidied up. I think things are there. And if somebody does something in one session and asks like, oh, would this be here? And you know, like they think this really cool, unique solution, I'll make a note. I'm like, that is so cool. I'm going to mention that in my description next time I tell (laughs) someone about this room. Like I I hope someone else thinks of that. And of course they don't. They think of something completely unique and different, which makes the DM experience fun and engaging each time. So to kind of go back in your history a little bit, um, and I know you, you kind of briefly mentioned this, but what got you started playing D and D, uh, kind of for the first times and were you on the DM side or did you start as a player? Oh gosh, it was like late middle school or early high school. Um, I was homeschooled and this kid in our homeschool group who I thought was very cool because he knew all the stats by heart, um, wanted to start a <laughs> D&D group. And so he and my two little brothers and I um, and his brother all played a 3.5 for a few months. And I think he like got into Green Day and decided to join a band and he stopped DMing for us and he had all the books. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay, that's too bad. But I still thought it was really fun. And I you know, I was always very into drawing. I would draw art for it. I had my own maps. And of course, my brothers didn't want me to DM because, you know, not cool enough. So I, I didn't really have any super geeky friends. I, uh, I was very introverted in high school and I had two friends and neither of them were really into that. So um, when I moved to L.A., uh, a few years after I'd been there, I made friends with um, these two people who were very geeky. And I was so excited. And I think one time we were hiking and... Um, I, I asked one of them because he'd mentioned something about Dungeons and Dragons before. And I was like, would you ever want to play a game with us? And he got super excited. And he had this like long-term campaign that he'd been wanting to run for like since I think grad school, which had been a few years ago for him. And uh, he hadn't had anyone who wanted to play it with him. So he introduced us all to the world of D&D. And, you know, like we were newbie players. So I, I started off and I made, oh God, I made... Uh, Ranger Beastmaster, which is like the worst possible thing I could have made. I, ah, uh, they're so. But it sounds uh, so cool. It every sounds time. so cool. And I think in free, I could be wrong. I'm. It's been forever since I've played 3.5, but I think I wanted to play a druid. I think they had animal companions in 3.5. And I said something about an animal companion and my friend, uh, Chris was like, oh, you mean a Ranger Beastmaster? And I was like, sure. So. Sure, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I, anyway, then I figured out the rules and I cross class cleric and I never went back. And yep. <laughs> um, so I, I got into the game that way. And then I, I got very into it and I started running one shots and eventually DM'd my own long term campaign. And now I'm doing professional DMing uh, and I'm in a couple other groups as well. That's super, super cool. So do you get to so in a couple of other groups? Does that mean that you get to play on the player side as well? Do you kind of switch back and forth or are you DM yeah. for life? Uh, so that friend that we started our original campaign with, which is over three years ago, it's still ongoing, but it plays, oh, wow. it plays very infrequently. Um, but right. we are level 17 now, I think. So nice. getting close to the end. Yeah. We started at four, I think not yeah. one, but it's, it's definitely like been a very long ongoing campaign. I think it's getting to the climax. Um, and then my fiance just a few months ago started running his own campaign. So I get to play a rogue mastermind in that each week. And that's been super fun. Oh, that's awesome. So uh, I'm going to go for a hot take here and say um, you uh, you also, if I believe, have a puppy that just turned three. So which came first, the puppy or the campaign? 
Oh gosh. Uh, I think the campaign, oh gosh, then it must've been over three years because I remember <laughs> we would go to their house and we'd be like, we can only do a three hour session, Chris. And he plans these like six to seven hour sessions and he gives us all snacks. And anyway, um, we'd have to be like, our dog's going to pee on the floor if we don't go home. And so we'd have to like take puppy pee breaks and drive home and let the dog <laughs> out and then come back or they would come over to our house. Um, so I think the campaign came a little bit before, but all yes, right, right. I have a Fair Labradoodle. Enough. He's amazing. Um, he's he's the love of my life. He's the best dog. And uh, on the on the topic of pets, you're also a foster kitty mom. I am. Um, so, oh gosh, like three or four years ago, I used to work for Scholastic Book Fairs, um, and I would oh, go that's from. So awesome. It was so fun. <laughs> they basically pay you to hang out and read all day and then sell books to kids during their lunch breaks. Um, but I went to this school once and somebody had found these orphaned baby kittens in the school's basement and they were going to drop them off at the animal shelter. And I didn't know a whole lot about it, but I knew that if you drop kittens off at the animal shelter before they're weaned, they get put to sleep if a rescue doesn't take them. So I put them in like a, a book box and I took them home with Aww. me so they wouldn't get dropped off. And my fiance was such a saint about it. I like called him on the way home and I was like, so I'm bringing something home with me. Don't be mad. It's but in I a Goosebumps a, box. <laughs> three kittens in a Goosebumps box. <laughs> um, and he was wonderful about it. He loves cats almost as much as I do. So he um, he got like a container ready and uh, drilled some air holes in it. And we, we figured out pretty quickly, you know, like how to care for them. We bottle fed them until they were ready to be adopted. And um, wow. it was just such a rewarding experience. Um, we kept doing it. And now it's like two or three years later and we've saved over 30 cats, I think. Um, Holy cow. Congratulations. That's amazing. And thank oh, you. Because so that is that's a big amount of work. Um, yeah, our most recent litter actually just got adopted this past Tuesday. Oh, that's amazing. Thank that's 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 super good. <laughs> I love yeah, that. it's it's super fun. Um, it's definitely one of our favorite hobbies together. That and D D. Right. D D and rescuing cats. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds a like life. a great life. It is. I'm very lucky. <laughs> um so on I so there's a couple directions. I'm gonna go this way first. So you okay. also had mentioned um your DM making snacks. So it wouldn't be Dungeons and Dinners if we didn't discuss food a little bit. So on that note of DM providing snacks, what is your favorite snack food, uh, either as a DM or as a player? So I really miss, I, I love playing online, but I really miss DMing my home game in person because I would do like themed spreads for people every week. And sometimes mm. they would be based on where where the characters were um so you know like the one of the main characters family owned a bakery and so i did like a uh, different flavored pancakes for everyone that night or we do oh, like a fancy cool. like cheese and nut and fruit plate did you know spread because we were at an elven city or something um so that was always really fun and i'm a decent cook i'm not like amazingly gourmet but um we it's it's pretty easy to throw together different like snack themed plates um and, and it's always so fun you know like you can make like vegetable fritters or you can give everyone like a slice of something like quiche or whatever that's not too hard um but i like doing like big things that i can share with people uh the homeschool community that i grew up in and also the southern community i grew up in was like big potluck culture so it sort of memories of like everyone bringing their own dishes or bringing their own snacks and sort of sharing something kind of interesting that they were able to make is is just so fun to me and i love that 
that sense of community that I think D&D also brings to that same atmosphere. No, I, I definitely, I guess I didn't realize that that kind of is like a Southern slash Midwestern kind of thing, because I'm a big believer in the potluck D&D, where it just like a smorgasbord of food brought to a campaign. Like we're like, we might get to the game tonight. <laughs> right. But it, it is one of those things that like the online game ha- offers so much, but eating on a mic is one of the worst things that you could possibly <laughs> do. <laughs> so. Yes. It has so. its, its pros and cons. I miss, so I really miss, handwriting notes or doing like calligraphy you know like clues for players that i physically get to hand them over because Mm -hmm. seeing how excited someone gets when you hand them like an old-fashioned note instead of just reading them something it's just so fun um but also i love roll 20 and um beyond and it's just it makes everything so easy yeah there's still a few there are some things that you can do in roll 20 as far as handing out like handouts and stuff because you can do short videos or gifs of like an animated like oh. spell card or something that you can because you can do the handouts i haven't done videos before is that mm-hmm. maybe i need to you look can, through the, yeah you can do you can available. do handouts of like basically just a an un unlisted video on youtube kind of thing oh and okay like just add the like, youtube link yeah, and then just have the link in there, or you can do like some some animated GIF type stuff. They've been increasing the number and types of things that you can kind of build into the the handout generator. That's so so there's cool. some stuff that like you can't give somebody an animated spell, you know, in the real right. world. But uh, do you do that with your players? So I did. I haven't run. I actually haven't been running a game in ages. the The podcast is kind of my. Uh, auxiliary to being able to run a game because my schedule's been a little all over and it's hard to to guarantee a night that I can do it. Um, but the last, the not the last game that I DM'd, but the two prior to that were Roll Twenty. The last game I DM'd was actually a solo, uh, g- just Gestalt game. So a single player, just like a one on one D and D game, wow. and and but I let them run Gestalt. And I even we because 5e is so action economy oriented, we built up the leveling system to include kind of a legendary action system for them uh, to take the place of because I told him I was like, I will not give you a DM NPC. There will be no characters that I will run that will main that will stay in your party for any significant length of time. And I was like, and I won't let you run a squire or a hired hand or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But what I will do is every based on your proficiency bonus basically i'll give you a number of legendary actions and then or kind of like hero points so like are the legendary actions the same thing as a regular action they can you just insert them in between other npcs turns if you kind of mob them with enemies or is it its own thing based on your character's class so it was kind of a couple things they went for i believe they were like a monk cleric gestalt and uh, I basically I called them hero points because I didn't I knew if I based them just on proficiency bonus that it would get really out of hand by like level six. So there were limits on how many full legendary actions they could take per round of combat. And then like two it was like one hero point got them a legendary action. They could only take them on other characters turns just kind of like normal legendary actions. 
but then like two points would give them advantage. It wouldn't give them like legendary resistance, but it could give them advantage on a resistance check. Um, and then like three, like I think it was also like two points for uh, certain types of reactions that like essentially borrowing from a couple few feats like a sentinel or a couple of other items that they could do and invest these points into to have another resource to burn. Um, but then they also did not regenerate normally. They regenerated like hit dice. So he could get up to half of the ones that he'd spent back on a long rest. And so it wasn't every long, cause again, and kind of discouraging the, I'm in a long rest between every battle sort of thing. Um, and but allowing me to then run mobs of characters against him without breaking the action economy. Um, so that was a really fun. It worked fairly well. Um, I think the campaign probably we played for about three months or so on that one. Um, and yeah, it, it played pretty well. I was I was pretty happy with how it worked. And the, the leg- because he was Gestalt, he had more options and a little bit more power. Kind of I gave him both hit dice pools um so a little bit beefier heroic kind of single character and the legendary actions made combat really different because combat was it was kind of always your turn right because both i was acting during his turns with characters that i had legendary actions on but then he's got so like one round of combat was a push and pull it wasn't just him like your npcs had the same rules Mm -hmm. yeah there were there were certain because because i've got a really powerful hero now so I'm like, if I've got a powerful hero, I need powerful enemies very quickly right, to kind of counter. I don't. Uh, Fifty goblins is great for you know they're they're kind of level one comeuppance, but after that, I want to. They, it was very much so kind of like an anime style campaign where there would be kind of a major combat encounter that was very thematic and over the top presentation, and then some NPC and travel that maybe kind of fast tracked. They were a very combat oriented player and the rules that we were using kind of leaned into that. So we tried to make everything kind of like, I, I tried to present a, an anime sort of one punch man sort of thing for him. So <laughs> some quick battles. yeah, quick battles, but you got a super powered character. So I'm going to have super powered foes and the stakes right. will be very high for every combat. Like there's a very real chance that you are solo. You could die. Like, I think there was, I think there was something for like four of his heroic points could be used to like get up from death or something like that. So like if he was KO'd. If you're a cleric, you could cast death ward on yourself or something. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, It would, he would have gotten very overpowered very quickly if that game had gone on very long. (laughs) I think that's so tricky because with, with fewer characters, you know, you do want to power them up with magical items because it's so hard to throw beefy encounters at them if they're not, you know, like the minimum, like four to five players that combat is designed for. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's so easy to misjudge how powerful an item is based on your character's abilities, and it's it's so easy to throw things into the game that end up being more powerful than you anticipated, and then the balance is really thrown off and it's it becomes such a, um, a jigsaw puzzle designing encounters that are going to really be near-death encounters for the more important fights without actually TPKing everyone. Yeah, it's it's always that, like, you don't want to just make something an HP sponge, but you've got... And you can't just take things away from players after you give it to them. But even, even simple items, like an alchemy jug, mm-hmm. can just ruin 
hundreds of future encounters. That's fair. I, I love versatile items like that, that you really mm-hmm. have to have an inventive player to utilize, but they can be so cool the way players think of like ways to subvert problems with them. Yeah, I, I like giving an item that like on the onset looks useless and then kind of maybe even starve them for items a little bit until they get in a position where like we have to use this and we figured out how because that answer is always something so creative that it's like uh, my, um, you guys did it now i now i shouldn't have given it to you <laughs> my players think of like the the most creative solutions for things uh i had one character who was like swindled into a tourist trap and got sold a, a, a wand that shoots glitter for like an insane amount of gold and they've <laughs> used it so well and they haven't had it that long but like they were afraid things were going to get stolen and they planted like a glitter bomb and in, inside of this thing they thought might get stolen so that you know like if someone grabbed it it would explode and they've used it to like you you know you can put it on someone's clothes and glitter stays everywhere so you can track someone it's it's yeah, really yeah, it's, interesting it makes a survival check with advantage as you're following yeah, somebody's totally glitter is. trail um it's, yeah they great. they do the greatest job thinking about like inventive ways to to use things that i just kind of threw out offhand assuming they would be useless um and i just love it it's the best yeah wand of glitter is something that, that <laughs> there you go <laughs> oh yeah that, that could be a lot of there's a lot of uh, like the the amount of mirrored effects that you can get and just blinding people distracting people like yeah that could be it's like pocket sand but mm-hmm. fabulous yeah basically <laughs> so you mentioned that uh while you may not be a gourmet chef that you are fairly into cooking yourself do you have if if i were uh to come over to your house and uh you wanted to to impress me with your lavish cooking skills, what what's your go-to? I'm gonna knock it out of the park and impress some guests. Dish. Um, well, I have a killer banana bread recipe for my great grandmother that I nice. always serve to people. Um, it's so good, uh, and I really like serving it for guests because my fiance hates banana bread, so I need people who appreciate <laughs> it. Um, Heirloom okay. recipes are amazing. Oh, they are. They're the best. Um, I have a corn casserole recipe, which no one out here has heard of corn casserole because I'm in California um, and I'm from North Carolina. So that's always really fun because no one knows what it is and then they try it and they're really excited about it usually. Yeah, I actually myself, please, please describe what is a corn casserole. Oh, it's so good. It's like a cornbread meets some sort of chowder, but it's, you know, it's like holds itself together a little more like a casserole. Okay. I'll send you the recipe. It's really good. Yeah, yeah. Please do. That'd be awesome. I mean, I'm in, I like cornbread. I like. Uh, I could do some chowder. So that would be that'd be fun. Oh yeah, it's so easy to make too. You can have it with like salad or something. Yeah, coming from the uh, speaking of North Carolina, coming from the Midwest, I I really just didn't know. Like, I sometimes say that I'm not very cultured because I haven't been a lot of places, and so we we went to took a trip to North Carolina, and I was like, oh, I'll get some pulled pork. This looks good, and. North Carolina pulled pork and like Kansas City barbecue pulled pork are very different <laughs> recipes. I was like, this is very vinegary and tastes like coleslaw. What is this? They're like, that's pulled pork. I'm like, no, this is not pulled pork. <laughs> it was still really good though. I actually really like it and now have a new flavor that I rather enjoy, but it did throw me off for a second. So I believe you. I know there's a big 
like a big hardcore stance on barbecue in North Carolina, but I've been vegetarian since I was 13. So I actually don't know ah, very much about it. So that's I'm sorry, fair. I can't weigh in there, nope, but I nope, totally no believe you. <laughs> uh, do you have like a, a go-to vegetarian dish that like a meatitarian, like, like somebody that's pretty staunchly, maybe a little, a little scoffingly anti-vegetarian that if you wanted to like try to change their heart, Oh gosh, I don't know. I I don't do a ton of meat substitutes. I'll I'll put like veggie bacon in sandwiches and stuff. But um, I'm I'm really into this show, uh, Hot Ones. Are you familiar mm-hmm. with that? Oh yeah, I love Hot Ones. Right. Um. So we have a bunch of the hot sauces from it. I love serrano yeah. peppers. So all the serrano pepper hot sauces. Um. So I buy like veggie like chicken strips and veggie fish fillets and stuff, and I use them as a vessel for hot sauce because like I like trying all the different ones than eating them with like frozen grapes or something like really cold. Um, right. So I usually do that. It's probably not the most gourmet way to eat meat substitutes, but, um, you know, I get my protein in. Right. So have you done, do you, do you own a bottle of Da Bomb then? Yes. And we threw it away because it was so oh. bad. And we were like, we tried it and we're like, I don't even want to give this to our friends. Like, this is like, I, I threw my um, fiance a hot sauce themed birthday party a few years ago. And we made everyone try it. And I was like, oh God, I don't want to do this to people. <laughs> just ruin the birthday party like, with the bomb. This is so mean. Like these people weren't prepared for what they were getting. I don't remember what it was that there, somebody had made like a, I don't know, it's probably a meme or something that they were doing a game for a Thanksgiving party where they made a batch of deviled eggs. And in, in one of the deviled eggs, like in the oh, white. No! They put like da bomb all over the bottom and then put all the filling in on top. And like, so one of the deviled eggs was actually a devil's egg. And then, yeah, they're just like, bring him to the, bring him to the Thanksgiving. (laughs) Be like, somebody's getting ruined. Imagine there's probably like some sweet little grandma or something that ended up getting it. No, granny. No, that's the one. (laughs) Not the one with the olive on top. No. Oh, so uh, you had also kind of mentioned theming food uh, to your to your campaigns and doing like spreads and stuff like that. Do you find yourself uh, referencing food in game very often? Not super often because I don't have any major foodies. I do have one character who's proficient with chef's tools and who often like looks for interesting ingredients, but he actually comes to the table with like his own recipes and tells me what he's making. So I don't have to describe it. Sweet. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So it's, it's, it is a food centric game sometimes depending on the players. Um, There have been a few feasts that they've been to, you know, where food is described a little bit more, but uh, I tend not to tell specifics as much. I tend to go more for mood when I'm describing something. So, you know, I'll write out like a description of the room and go more for something that, that feels a little bit more evocative. And then maybe one to two key details, like maybe one scent or one like vibe or, you know, like you can almost feel the musk on your skin, you know, as this dust resettles or something like that. And I find that that feels a little bit more concise, but also keeps it evocative enough that they can understand what the atmosphere they're in. And then if they ask if things are available, I could tell them. Um, That's but really I good. don't usually do detailed descriptions. I, I've started shying away from them myself, mostly because you just get a feel for if players want detail or not, like they'll kind of ask for it. Like you can mm-hmm. set a stage, but I don't need to read a paragraph, you know, to, to give somebody an idea of where they're at. Right. And I think when you do take the time to describe it more or to give a very poignant description of an NPC or a place, then the, 
the players instantly kind of key in, oh, this is important, and they pay right. a little bit more attention. And it's it's also, I, I from the other perspective, it's got to be nice to have players that bring stuff to the table. Um, do you find that in a paid-for DM position that players are a little bit more willing to bring more of themselves to the game? It really varies, actually. I think it depends on the person. Um, I haven't noticed that there's a tendency one way or the other. I've had a few players who have a lot that they bring and things that they ask for or, you know, even contact me with like a little bit of backstory pre-game, even though it's like a one shot or something, which I absolutely love. Um, and then I have players who it's clear they're, you know, they're not as comfortable with role playing and they're maybe a little more shy. And I try and make more of an effort to integrate them into the game and ask them how they're interacting with things. Um, That's really cool. And yeah, it's kind of give and take depending on who you get. Do you have as many, because I know, like, do you have a lot of brand new players to the game that are coming for, for your sessions? I've had one person come in with his kid and it was his kid's first time ever playing D&D. And she was so cute. Oh my gosh, I, I loved her. And she got so excited. She got like the killing blow on one of the monsters. Um, and that was really fun. It, it slowed things down a little bit, but not nearly as much as I thought it might um, because she was somewhat familiar with the rules. I think her dad had gone over it with before her. Um, but usually I get people who it's it's not uncommon for them to be like, oh, I've read the rules I've played, you know, like with a friend very briefly or I've watched critical role or something so they have enough of a handle on it that if i ask them what they're doing they can at least ask a question or i can just you know like i usually have dnd beyond open another page and i have them join my campaign so i can look through and i'll be like so you have a dagger you're proficient in and you have eldritch blast you know you could do these three things and oftentimes you know they'll get the hint and they'll you know sometimes if they're having a little bit of trouble i'll tell them when they're on deck um Right. But it hasn't been that much of an issue so far. I think people kind of understand that this is a storytelling piece and, you know, they're one of the main characters and everyone seems really generous and really helpful if they see that a new player is struggling and sort of encouraging them and trying to show them what they can do um, by example, if not by suggestion. Okay, that's super cool. So I got two more things that I gotta, gotta hit. Um, Ooh, you know what though? We are uh, we are getting a little close on time. There may be a couple of things that we're going to have to uh, to kick over to the Patreon episode. So instead, I would like to uh, reserve this time near the end of the main show uh, for you. Is there anything that we haven't hit on that you would like to talk about, or um, any uh, shout outs that you would like to give before we wrap things up? Oh my gosh. I was going to mention that I fostered kittens, but we talked about that already. Um, <laughs> I gotcha. We got a little bit of hot ones research going on over here ourselves, you know, so. Right. Um, if anybody is interested in fostering kittens, we work with the rescue group Kit Crusaders in Los Angeles, and they're always looking for donations and foster parents. So if you're in the LA area and you want to get into that, it's a really fun, rewarding, wonderful experience. And I would highly recommend them. They're great. Um, and as for me, if you want to look for me on the DM search on startplaying.games, my name is Maria Oglesby. I do uh, like private games if you have a group of friends and you want to pay me to run a one shot or if, you know, like something themed or a mini campaign that I don't already offer, you can. Uh, and I usually have one shots or, you know, campaigns up for scheduling at least every week or so. That's awesome. That's great. And we'll have all of your links in the show notes, including uh, your Instagram and your Etsy store. If people are interested in looking at some of your digital artworks and, and purchasing some of those as well. Yeah. Thank you so much. I am currently available for commissions as well. If you have character art that you need done. Glorious. Yeah. Let's get some to you. Cool. Thank you so much for having me.
Yeah, thank you for coming by. And uh, for those listening, uh, join us over on Patreon at the $5 level. You guys will get access to a mini-sode where we're going to talk about a couple of things that Maria uh, might have in the works. So thank you. So that's all for the episode today. Please let me know your thoughts, comments, or your episode ideas. All of the links and contact information can be found on the card website down in the show notes, and I'm most active on Twitter at AndDinners. If you're interested in supporting the show and getting access to the new bonus episodes, Discord integration, or you just want to show your general support, please consider tossing a few coins over to patreon.com slash dungeonsanddinners. If you're looking for other great podcasts to listen to, check out my other broadcast, Pick Up Your Sticks, a long-form podcast about why gaming matters, co-hosted by myself and my dear friend Walker Near. I'm really excited to be sharing this journey with you, and remember that love is the secret ingredient. Have a good day, friend. Thanks for stopping by.